0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As he gives us his perspectives on market trends, economic growth, global interest rates and much more. The S&P 500 cap-weighted index reached new all-time highs, however, not for the equal-weighted and for the small caps. Urien believes higher-than-expected earnings and a tight labor market are major contributors to this recent rise. At the same time, Urien believes the market is overestimating the number of rate cuts the Fed will likely implement. He discusses the impact of Fed cut rates being uncertain on Canadian homeowners and corporations. Overall, he expects a bullish broadening theme in the market this year. He adds there is a possibility of having a short bull market, but typically the market tends to go up 70 to 80 percent on average in a short bull market. But he also says it's too early to tell, as he describes the market as a young bull market that potentially has more runway left. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to timmerfidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on February 4th, 2024.
1: Let's go through what we saw through the end of last week, but really through the month of January. Put it all in perspective for us.
2: Yeah, so let's go to slide one. You know, so January was um, obviously a big month. Uh, The market made a new all-time high, at least the S and P 500 cap-weighted index, as well as the Dow and Nasdaq, but not the equal-weighted, not the not the small caps, but not yet uh, S and P 500, not not yet. Uh, And and my work shows that. uh, the generals often lead, but the soldiers usually follow. Not always immediately, but you know, uh, when you look at drawdowns historically, uh, small caps tend to go down more than large caps when the market does go down, and therefore it can just take longer, mathematically, to make a new high after that. So, uh, so I, I think that that part is 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 okay. But here's the S and P uh, all bu- all bull market cycles So you know, at a new high uh so the october 2022 low um low seems to be that final low i mean it it's been a while since we can actually say that i mean it was my hunch all along but uh, but i think um uh you know that's now at least technically confirmed and uh of course if we go to slide 6 uh we do see that you know again that caveat is still out there s&p 500 equal weighted still just a fraction below its all time high. So it's not totally the all clear, but like I said, you know, when when the cap weighted index uh, makes a new high, which of course is how we look at the market historically, because this is the uh, equal weighted, it only goes back to the 80s or so. So when we look at market history and we look at market returns, we're looking at cap weighted, and we're looking at total returns as opposed to price, this, this chart is price. But but if we put this, um, if we look at it kind of all bear markets, if we go to slide seven, the next slide, uh, we can put a little bit in perspective now, what January uh, really accomplished as, as a milestone. So um, I have the bear market history going all the way back to the 1870s. Um, but if we look at it just from the post-World World War period, which is what this table shows. Uh, we can see that the S&P fell 28% from January 2022 to October 2022, and has now made a new all-time high. And the median of all the cycles since 1950 was 26%. So it's kind of garden variety. Although there was nothing garden variety about you know about it when when we were going through it. Uh, but if you kind of look towards the right-hand side of the of the table there, you can see that uh, so far, markets up about 38%, 40%, depending on whether you use daily closes or monthly closes. Um, and it has taken 25 months for the market to recover its loss. And it's interesting that even there, when you kind of look, glance down at the table, you can see that the median period it has taken uh, is 23 months. So even there, ah. we're sort of you know kind of in the middle of the pack uh, in terms of you know how far down we went and how long it took to recover it. And if we can put that in in a chart form in the next slide, um, uh, we can see that the market is up 38 percent. And you can, so this chart shows all the declines. This is actually going back to the 1870. So 150 years of history, all the declines on the left, and then all the subsequent uh, bull markets uh, on the right. So that's from the bear market trough that we had in 2022 to whatever the next cycle peak is. And who knows, it could be today, or it could be four years from now. We We don't obviously don't know the answer, but we can see that at the current 38%, uh, it is well short of what we've seen in the past. There been there was one shorter, 1914. I don't really remember what happened back then. It wasn't around. So there there are a few short bull markets, but generally speaking, uh, the market tends to go up about you know 70, 80 percent on average, and sometimes it goes up a lot more, and sometimes it goes up a little bit less. But the point here is that this is still a young a young bull market uh, that potentially has some more runway left in it.
1: So so just sort of, yeah, so that's as I was going to ask. It's still young, still time to get in. And, you know, on average, how much further is there to go?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we go back to slide seven where the table is, you can see that the median bull market um, is well north of what we have so far uh, done. And so, yeah, if you look uh, at the uh, next peak part of the table kind of, to the to the farthest uh, third, you can see that the percent change typically is 81% over 33 months, and so we've done you know 38% over 25 months. So so the you know the, the typical cycle is four or five years, and um, and so we're we're kind of this market is sort of feeling early bull market, early cycle bull market, even though the economy is in a different. Place and and we can certainly chat about that. But it's interesting uh, if we go to slide thirteen for a moment. uh, One thing that the audience will very likely be hearing about is the so-called January barometer, uh, which holds that you know if January is positive, it's a good omen for for the year. Uh, And there's even another version of this, which is that if the first five days of January are positive, uh, it's a good omen for the month and therefore the year. And Technically, that is true uh, because I've backtested this, of course, as, as I back-test everything. Um, but there's slightly less than meets the eye here because uh, this notion of if January is good, the year is good is true, but it's true for any month. So if you kind of read the table, you can see that no matter which month we're looking at, if the month is positive, the, the, the 12-month period is positive as well. And so all that really tells us is that markets tend to trend. Uh, markets are, you know, they, they tend to work in, in trends. And so when any month is positive or negative, uh, chances are that the market is trending in that direction and therefore the surrounding months will do something similar. But, but you know, we showed, um, I think uh, not last week, but two weeks ago, we showed that new high table. I don't have it um, this week, but uh, when the market makes a new all-time high, there tends to be some momentum there, right? Typically, the market goes up 8%, 8.5% in terms of price, or 8.2%, uh, about 70% of the time. Um, and when the market is making a new all-time high for the first time after a bear market or a correction, it tends to go up about 14%, about 90% of the time. So that shows you that when the market is when the uptrend is reasserting itself and actually if we go to slide 10 we can see that uptrend uh when the mar- when the uptrend is reasserting itself after a correction uh, there's momentum and so what the january barometer shows is momentum what that new highs table shows is momentum so that i think is is the theme here and that's why um i feel relatively comfortable saying that you know equal weighted and smaller caps uh, will eventually follow but here's the S&P cap weighted that trend line goes back to 06 um uh, and you can see you know from the pandemic we went below that up channel then with all that stimulus we went above it that was sort of a, a mini bubble and then during the 2022 rate reset we went not quite to the bottom we we didn't get that 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 fat pitch of like oh my god the market is so far Away from its trend line, that you can sort of close your eyes and buy. We never got that opportunity, but we got to the bottom half of the range, and now we're getting back to the upper half of the range. So it's it's certainly
1: an impressive performance. Impressive performance, and as you say, it's still narrow. But but it, in theory, as you say, if the, if the generals lead, the soldiers will follow. Bring us into the earnings story from that. So we watched blowout um, tech results. There were some different reactions in the markets to some of those, and some were, were truly stellar. But but tell us how that bodes ultimately for sort of watching price lead, earnings to follow, and where there might be room for some rotation within the market, within the bullish yeah. story.
2: Absolutely. So let's go to slide 18. And, uh, you know, Will Danoff was on stage, and he said, you know, price follows earnings. And he is, of course, absolutely right. Although uh, price follows earnings, but it also leads earnings in that, price will will discount what the expectations are for earnings. And so, therefore, technically, price leads, but it it leads the expectation of earnings, which means it still follows the earnings estimates. Uh, But uh, so, you know, we are in the middle of fourth quarter earnings season, of course. Uh, About 230 companies have reported, so half the index. Uh, Fairly typical results, you know, 78% of companies are beating estimates by an average of 7 percentage points, So that's fairly standard stuff. But last week, of course, we had the blowout number from Meta, which, you know, I don't do individual securities, as you know, but that is a big, big, big company, and it had blowout earnings. So if you look at the, the black line there, so this is the progression of growth estimates for the S&P going into earnings season, which is the vertic- vertical line, and then during earnings season. And we know the pattern. Typically, the line uh, falls going into earnings season, and then it goes up because companies like to under promise and over deliver and so uh, a week ago i'm like you know where where where's where's the beef like the 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 number wasn't really bouncing, and then of course, last week we got a very big bounce so we've gone from a one percent growth rate to now five point four and if we go to the next slide, we can see that this is actually lifting the calendar year number, so the black line was at minus three, so a modest contraction for 2023. Now it's at minus 2.6. I mean, it's a small difference, of course, but we do see that as, and we see this all the time, that as companies beat uh, estimates, um, you know, the line goes up, but it gets sort of borrowed from future results. And so you can see that the pink line, which is the 2024 estimate is now starting to come down, which is also very typical, like typically this number comes down, and the outlying numbers tend to start too high, so we are now looking at nine percent growth for this year uh down from eleven uh and we we were kind of expecting that we've talked about that that eleven seemed a little bit too high, probably six seven, eight is much more reasonable, and that I suspect is where we where we get and then the twenty twenty five number which is the purple on the left. Um, i think is is way too high at 14% but uh, but again that's nobody's really paying attention yet but it's interesting that um that uh, last week we got some economic releases and of course the jobs report on friday was a big one uh, 353,000 new jobs oh, so much stronger
1: you yeah. no? we just yeah. hold for a second like that that was yeah. um there were, there were those saying, you know, it wouldn't even be terrible if there was one negative poor, but, you know, they were sort of due for one. <laughs> There's this massive number. I mean, your thoughts.
2: Yeah, so it, it was a big, big number. Uh, I mean, people are kind of picking it apart, saying that it was this or that. But, you know, g- good news is not necessarily good news anymore because the stronger the data is, the less likely it is that the Fed will cut rates. And that's certainly something we've been talking about as well. Uh, but clearly the economy is proving to be pretty strong. And if we go to slide 21, we can see another another number, so not the payroll number, but the PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index, that is now within a hair of right. actually turning positive, uh, which is very important because the manufacturing sector, which is what the PMI measures, this is a diffusion index, so that's the black line, Above fifty means uh, expansion below fifty means contraction, uh, but that number has been below fifty since twenty twenty one that's like a long time, and that's you know part of this conversation about you know how strong is the economy? Uh, does the yield curve still work as a signal and I think one of the nuances for this cycle is that we've had these rolling pockets of weakness, and one of them obviously has been the goods producing sector so we're back at forty nine that that's obviously still below fifty, but new orders, <laughs> which is the leading component of the p m i is back above fifty and as you can see, the earnings uh growth number, the pink line, is highly correlated to the p m i so this is another um you know piece of anecdotal evidence that suggests that the earnings cycle really has bottomed in the third quarter of last year, and that we're on to uh to now positive growth. Um, for 2024, and that's very much in line with the whole narrative of a soft landing.
1: Really fascinating to watch some of these pieces come in um, and, and to obviously put them into the puzzle of where the economy is going. A bunch of different questions coming in here. Let's let's get to a couple of them. So one of them is, I mean, this is interesting. So, so do valuations matter? I mean, you watch the MAG-7 do what they're doing. Um Maybe with that in mind, do valuations
2: matter? <laughs> that's, that's, that's such a good question. So let's go to slide 26. Um, they, they matter over the long term, right? Because if you think about it, so and, and long term, I mean, if you look at a, at a CAPE ratio, a cyclically adjusted PE, where uh, you, know, you take a longer measure of earnings instead of just you know, last 12 months or next 12 months, um, it matters because if you let's say you start investing for the first time and you're buying a stock or a portfolio at 50 times earnings. Think about how high the hurdle is for you to get paid on your uh, on the on future growth. Right. You're you're paying a lot uh, for for that future growth. This is the same in the bonds mar- in the bond market. Right. If you're buying a stream of bond coupons and, and the yield is one percent different than 10 percent. The math is just different, so it does matter over the long run. And I've we've talked about the Cape model, where the the Cape ratio, so price over ten year earnings, is highly predictive over the next ten years return. But ten years is a long time, so the the PE has little bearing on the next twelve months, the next twenty four months. But it does it is important because you think of it as a hurdle rate. If if you're buying, if you're buying, you know. 30 years of, of, of stock performance uh, as an investor and you're paying 10 times earnings, it's different than if you're paying 30 times or 50 times. But over the near term, it's not a great indicator. And at inflection points, at cyclical inflection points, it can be a very misleading indicator uh, because, as, you know, as we've talked about many times, price leads earnings um uh it, price follows earnings as will Danoff says, but it also leads earnings because it 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 factors in earnings expectations so at a at a market bottom, the price will bottom first earnings will bottom maybe two three even four quarters later, so by definition, during that early cycle phase the p e goes up, and you can see that in the chart, the pink line the the gray line have been going up um and um and the way to kind of make sense of this in a in a traditional quantitative setting is you know when you plug earnings growth into a discounted cash flow model you're basically calculating present value of future cash flows so you got to put on those cash flows in and then you have to discount them by an interest rate which is the cost of capital which is the 10 year treasury yield plus an equity risk premium and the equity risk premium being the compensation that investors uh, demand for buying uh, riskier assets over the risk-free asset. Um, And so when you plug all of this in a DCF, it solves for the risk premium that explains the current price. And so in the bottom panel, you can see that the risk premium is typically 5%, and today it's 3.7%. So this is where you kind of can explain the high P.E., where it's really kind of a sentiment indicator, right? Because right now investors are willing to accept only 3.7% above the risk-free rate to buy a riskier asset instead of the normal 5%. Now, I would argue 3.7 is not egregious. It's not like it's zero or minus five. Uh, so it's it's still okay, but that's kind of, I think, how you can explain the valuation. And if we go to slide 23 for a moment, um, you know, and I've shown this chart many, many times, you can see that if you deconstruct uh, the return of the market into the valuation component and the earnings component, you can see that when one zigs, typically the other one zags. So often when earnings are growing, investors uh, don't really pay for that because they see it as cyclical and it's already priced into the market anyway. So when the orange bars go up, Uh, Often the purple bars, which is the change in valuation, goes down and vice versa. And what you can see here over the past, you know, uh, what is it, 14, uh, 15 months or so since the market bottomed, uh, the rally has been all P.E. driven uh, and earnings are ever so slightly down. They were down 2 percent, 3 percent, and they're kind of flat now. That's the year over year change. So you can see that the market actually is doing exactly what it typically does. And what it did four years ago in 2020, I remember having this conversation with you after the pandemic, you know, the market recovered and people were like, how can the market be up when all of this bad stuff is happening? Because, and the answer is the market's discounting, you know, uh, a, a recovery. And that's exactly what it did. And it was right. And it's what it's doing now. And based on what we were just talking about with earnings, it looks like the market is right again. But what that means is that, As earnings now start to grow, uh, the PE needs to at least stop going up or maybe even start coming down a little bit because it's like the baton gets passed from a valuation phase of a bull market to an earnings phase.
1: So interesting. Okay, another question here for you, and we haven't really mentioned this. Well, you mentioned it in terms of the jobs number on Friday, that it's good news might mean that the Fed is less likely to act, basically. So here's the question. How many rate cuts is the market still pricing in? Warp is a little bit of a journey this morning, but uh, still it's looking less likely, isn't it, the March cut?
2: Yeah. So let's go to slide 15. And uh, so I've been fairly vocal on this, that um, the market's expectation for the Fed to cut, you know, rates six, seven times I think it's just silly, Uh, unless we go into a recession. Then it's not silly, and then nothing is silly because that'll be very serious. But in a soft landing scenario, which we appear to be in and which the market is completely discounting, uh, there's no way the Fed's going to cut more than what it said, which is three times, right? So in December at the FOMC, the Fed, through its summary of economic projections, Indicated, hinted that there will be three rate cuts. The dot plot also suggested that. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because inflation core PCE has gone from 5.6 to now 2.9. The Fed is at five and three eighths. Uh, in a normal environment, the Fed would manage to a positive real rate. Uh, so the rate minus the inflation rate should be above zero. And so a positive real rate of, let's say, 100 basis points would get you to 4 point, uh, well, 3.9, um, 4. You know, four, something like 100 to 150 basis points, which is the historical average. And that gives you, you know, at most maybe 100 basis points of rate cuts. But I think the Fed uh, and, and then another way of thinking about it is, is in this chart here, which is uh, all in real real terms. So the gray line is the, is the natural rate. So R star it was around one one and a quarter or so, and if inflation settles in at three percent, which I suspect it will, then three um, percent plus one plus one and a quarter gets you to four four and a half, and so that gets you to three rate cuts from five and three eight. So so the market I think is uh, is you know doing some wishful thinking. And also, and and this is just a a hunch on on my part, but studying history and, you know, remember you and I talked about the 1940s a lot. I'm now reading volume two of the history of the Federal Reserve. Um, I was reading it on my quarter flight back and forth because there was no Wi-Fi on quarter, which is totally fine. It's a short flight. But the 60s are very instructive because the Fed made a very big policy error back in the late 60s because at that point, Uh, Everything was about full employment. There were large deficits, you know, guns and butter, uh, just like there are today. And nobody was focused on inflation. Nobody even thought in terms of real rates yet back then. I mean, that's kind of how primitive those days were. And at the first hint of weakness, the Fed cut rates because rates were higher because inflation was higher. And so the Fed thought it was being restrictive because nominal rates were higher but they weren't because inflation was higher. And so the Fed kind of cut rates too fast, and then it had to come back and raise them again because inflation just accelerated. And that was a that was a big policy error of the of the era. And my my hunch is that the Fed, the reason it's been so aggressive on the hiking side and so kind of timid or hawkish on giving back those hikes, and we saw Jay Powell on 60 Minutes yesterday. I think the reason for that is that it doesn't want to repeat those mistakes. It wants to lean into the fiscal uh, deficits that are being run. And so I think think all of this is delivered, and the Fed uh, is very unlikely to give uh, the rate cuts that the market is is expecting. And that's okay. Markets will be okay because earnings are a bigger driver than than rates. Uh, But it it informs us to how much bond yields can fall, for instance, uh, and how much uh, short rates will fall.
1: I want to ask you a question that sort of, again, is asking you to uh, give us a a hunch, a very well-educated hunch. Um, If if the US uh, does what it looks like it's going to do in the soft landing, it, it probably drags Canada with it to an extent, there's nuance within Canada, but I'm sort of getting to the Canadian rate story, which I'm not necessarily asking you to comment on, but if the economy is okay in the US and resilient in the ways that it looks like it is, and if it drags Canada and perhaps much of the world along with it. I sort of just want your broader view of how the global yeah. interest rate story might look a little different than it did even last week.
2: Uh, yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, for me, the, the bullish broadening theme, meaning the market goes up and it broadens, uh, that's been my that's my my outlook for the year and, and beyond. Um, I think the rest of the world will participate and broaden out as well. Uh, the big question is, you know, broadening doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the world outperforms, it just means that it participates. So I don't have a good handle whether the MAG7 will start to underperform in this scenario or whether the rest of the market just catches up but still kind of lags behind. And, you know, I'll, I'll take that over over the alternative, of course, right. but, uh, but the, the rate question is interesting because, Obviously, Canada is more of an adjustable rate mortgage market, whereas the U.S. these days is more of a fixed rate mortgage market. And one of the reasons the U.S. has been so resilient in terms of the economy is that a lot of people locked in long, you know, low rates for long times, not only homeowners, but corporations as well. And that is not the case in Canada or in Europe or other parts of the country. So, um, you know, so. On the one hand, if the US is resilient, it will bring Canada along, right? Because they're big trading partners. But on the other side, you know, it means the Fed will cut rates less, which means that Canadian homeowners are gonna have rate resets, uh, you know, like the Fed cutting rates in a weak economy. It's it's like a double-edged sword, right? Because that also provides relief because as it, as homeowners and corporations also in the US face that wall of maturity, if the Fed cuts a lot, if the Fed cuts 200 basis points, that wall of maturity is not going to be so steep. But if the Fed doesn't cut, it's going to be steeper. So it's definitely a very balanced sort of, uh, you know, uh, picture here.
1: Right. Okay. Fascinating just to to kind of get your thoughts there. Let's roll back to the anatomy of the bull market that you described to us through your conversation today. Um, Just take us back to sort of how early we are in this bull market, you know, and and, and ultimately is it have we missed it? You know, if we're not in it, can we get in it? You're speaking to Canadian investors, have they missed yeah. the book. Uh, I
2: I don't think they've missed it. And actually, if we could go back to slide 23, uh, I want to point out one um one little nuance in, in this chart where the valuation often goes in the opposite direction of earnings. Uh, that when you have a soft landing, there can be periods where the valuation is expanding and earnings are growing. That happened in 2016. Uh, No, slide 23, the the following slide. Uh, That happened in 2016. Remember 2015 was a period where China was weak. China wanted to cut rates or devalue, but the, the Yellen Fed was trying to raise rates. So that box there on the left was a period that was, I guess technically it's not a soft landing, but that was a period where uh, the market, you know, recovered after a long correction, and you had kind of this double whammy of valuation and and earnings. Maybe we'll see the same, and we also saw that in 1995. And hmm. I want to show you this one last chart before we go, and that's the next slide, 24. Where I've, I've sequenced them up nicely today. Um, both the 95 soft landing and that 2016 period. Uh, are looking a lot like what the market has done so far. And, you know, not to sound overly bullish, but those were periods where, you know, obviously in 2016, the market didn't peak out until uh 2018. And by then it was about 60% higher. So that suggests that there is still room. And of course, 94 going all the way to the 1998 correction, uh, that was a rally of over 100%. And so soft landings, don't have an, don't happen often, uh, but when they do, it has pretty good implications for for
1: equities. Fantastic! It's uh, lovely to see you, hear your thoughts, and uh, we wish you, um, yeah, no no rain, sleet, rain, <laughs> whatever on the on the east coast. We'll see you soon, Urien Timmer. Thanks okay. for joining us. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.